that describes my past. And she says, I don't really think I want to hear anymore. <laughs> he grabbed her by the arm. He said, no, 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 let me tell you my present. And he reads to her verses 4 to about 6. And by then she's starting to get up. And uh, he's got hold of her arm. And if he held on to it much tighter than he would have been charged with some sort of abuse, I'm sure. And she said, look, that's plenty. I don't want to hear anything else. And he said, well, just before you go, here is my future. And he reads to her verse 7 and verse 10. And Dr. Harry Ironside is exactly right. That's what Paul does for us in this passage of Scripture. He describes for us our past, our present, and our future. And so I'm going to read it to you this morning, and you can give me your quarter at the end. <laughs> Paul says in Ephesians 2 from the NIV, As for you, you were dead in trespasses, transgressions, and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's our past, our present. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive in and with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order, our future, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's a great passage, isn't it? This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you that we can be together and that we have your word and your spirit. And again, we ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to teach us, to shape us, Lord, show us something in the passage we haven't seen before, by all means. But most of all, show us things about our lives that we need to develop or remove, that we might be more like the Lord Jesus, for we desire him to be reflected in us and for his name to be honoured. We ask this in his name. And everybody said? Verses 1 to 3 is our past, the human condition. It's a terrible description. And it's one that some people would simply react to and say, that's not true for me. But this passage is describing everybody. It's describing you. It's describing me. It's describing all of us. Nobody is excluded from this evaluation. This is God's mirror held up. This is how God sees us. We may not see ourselves this way. If I describe to you my outstanding human life, I've never done drugs. I have never been drunk in my life. I've never had multiple sex partners. I have lived an outwardly moral life. And that's probably true for many of you. I had an associate pastor once who, previous church, when he came in the very first service, he introduced himself and he stood up at the night service and he said, I would like to describe to you my previous life of drugs and of gambling, womanising. But seeing that I was converted at 10, none of it is applicable. <laughs> I would like to describe to you, he said. 
And he went on to say that he was reasonably a good, moral, upright person who nonetheless had to come to faith in the Lord Jesus, raised in a Christian home. I wasn't. But we all need to come to a point in our lives where we acknowledge Jesus as Lord, where we ask him to be the forgiver of our souls, the transformer of our lives. Well, there are three things. There are lots of things, Paul says, but I've put them under three headings this morning. And I'm following a commentator, John Stott. This is, these three points are really his, so thank him for them. Number one, we are dead. Number two, we are enslaved. And number three, we are condemned. So number one, we are dead. He doesn't mean physically, obviously. He means spiritually dead because he'll go on to talk about how we lived and chose to do things in this world. The dead in verse 1, as for you, you were dead, is spiritually dead in your trespasses and your sins. It's an interesting distinction between the words trespasses, transgressions and sins. Transgressions are those things where, which we do, where we are active, where we have crossed the line, where we have done something wrong, uh, intentionally stepping over the boundary or deviating from the course. Sins, on the other hand, means that we have fallen short, we've missed the mark. It's something we probably have omitted to do. Sins of action as well as sins of um, omission, commission and omission. That which is positively wrong, that which is passively or negatively. Spiritual death is far more serious than physical death. Because spiritual death is that which separates us, alienates us, as he says in chapter 4, verse 18, from God. That's what the whole story of what we did last Sunday night, Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve in the garden, and God's warning to him that don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat of it, you will die, meaning not physically fall over dead, but you will begin the process of physical death, but you will be separated from me immediately. And that's exactly what happens. They are fearful of God, they hide in the garden, and eventually God removes them from his presence, from the garden. Spiritually dead means we are separated, alienated from him, and in some sense, unresponsive to him. That's what Isaiah 59 verse 2, the prophet says this to the people of Israel, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hid his face from you so that he will not hear you. Transgressions and sin, trespasses and sins separate us from God. That's a spiritual reality that you know about. But for the world out there, they don't know that. They look around and they see people are not spiritually dead. They see them as physically fit and alert, academically active, capable scholars, people who are, many of them, loving and nice and even moral, doing good things. And that's true outwardly. But this is talking about in the soul. This is talking about our spirit, that those nice people don't know God, I'm not interested in God, they have no attraction towards him, no appetite for God or his word, they're blind to Jesus, deaf to his voice and to his spirit, there's no Abba Father resonating in their hearts, they're unresponsive, dead and that's easy for us to understand or for anybody to understand if you get it that we are not just physical beings, that we are physical and spiritual together. That when God made Adam in the garden, he knelt down and he takes the clay and the mud and he builds this statue. And then the Lord kneeling down puts his mouth to the mouth of the statue and breathes life into it. Physical, 
and spiritual combined together. And so death, physical death, is the separation of those two. The body remains and the spirit, the soul, the invisible part of us, goes. Goes to be with the Lord if we are followers of his. Goes to a place called Hades if we are not followers of his. Two parts. So it's possible for people on the outside physically to look alert and fit and active and alive, but spiritually on the inside, dead. That's the first thing Paul wants us to remember. His point in this passage is he wants to highlight and magnify the grace and the goodness of what God has done. And he said, never forget your past, where you came from. Not to wallow in it, not to glory in it, but to remember what God saved us from. He goes on to say that we lived in these things. The passage begins with we walked in them, in which you used to live or walk when you followed the ways of this world. Second point, we are spiritually dead, but we are also, different analogy if you like, we are enslaved, we are bound. And he talks about three different forces. He talks about us walking in this bondage. It's a Hebrew way of speaking, that it's our lifestyle, it's which characterises us. And there is a force around us, which influences us, or used to in our past. There is a force above us, which influences, influenced us. And there is also something within us. There is the world, there is the devil, and there is our own flesh, our own sin. These are the three things Paul goes on to talk about in this passage. Um, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world around us, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air above us. And all of us also, verse 3, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature within us. We were enslaved, and it was impossible for us to be set free. We could not free ourselves. We followed the ways of this world or of this age. It permeated, it influenced, it dominated our actions and our attitudes. Peer pressure. What people thought of us was far more important to us than what God actually said to us or about us. We follow the community standards, or in the words of Romans, we conform to the standards of this world. That's what life used to be like for us. And just as an aside, some people throughout church history have taken the wrong conclusion that that's what we used to be like and therefore what we need to do is to remove ourselves from the world. We need to distance ourselves. We need to not only not be like them, we need not to be with them. And that's an overreaction. That's an incorrect response. John chapter 17, the Lord Jesus, in a prayer to the Father, says this, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is that truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So the Lord Jesus wants us to live in the world, the world of people, but he wants us to be distinct from it, to live in the light of what he has done for us. But in referring to our past, that was a power which was enslaving us and enslaves the people that we're trying to reach with, with the gospel, enslaved by the ways of the world. Secondly, not just peer pressure and people, but above us in the lower heavens, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one with his unseen world of demons... The passage actually says that he is the spirit who is now at work 
in the sons of disobedience. A very Hebrew way of speaking, but it's... He is the spirit who is now energising. That's the word. Energising. That's the same word that is used back in chapter 1, verse 20, where it talks about God, by his power, raised Jesus. Energised him. Raised him from the dead. That's this opposing spiritual force in the heavenlies of an evil nature. And the evil one is energising the sons of disobedience, those characterised by disobedience. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the last verse, verse 26, talks about Paul saying how we should live amongst the unbelievers and to be gentle and to present the gospel and to pray that God might grant them repentance and deliver them from Satan who has taken them captive to do his will, is what Paul writes, that we were enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. The evil one is at work, this passage reminds us. And he used to energise us before we knew Jesus who has set us free, delivered us from his influences. But he continues to work. He continues to work in the world around us and he certainly tries to work within us. He is the one who removes the seed of the word from the path so that it's not received. He is the one who, makes the bl- who blinds the minds of the unbeliever. He is the one who tempts and who deceives. He is the one behind distractions and destructions. The evil one is at work, subtly, insidiously. And it is a spiritual power that can only be broken by prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there was the world around us in our past that used to influence us. There was the influence, the evil one above us and snaring us. But even beyond that, there is our own sinful nature, the flesh, our fallen self-centered nature. And that all of us have that, had that. And we used to live among people like that and used to behave like them. Paul goes on to speak very honestly that we gratified the cravings of our own desires, desires of the body and desires of the mind. Pride and selfish ambition and rejection of truth and malicious thoughts. So before we knew Jesus, when it comes to our past, we were subject to these influences around us, above us and in us, spiritually dead, enslaved, and he's not finished. God's mirror of spiritual reality held up says that we're also under condemnation. We were dead men walking, old moving. I think it's a movie about a true story or an actual story. And it's a great metaphor. It's about a serial killer who was arrested, found guilty, and is now on death row. And at the end of his term of appeals and everything else, years in prison, he now comes to the point in his life where he's going to head to the death chamber where he will lose his life that day. And when they give him his last meal and they chain him up and they're walking him out, when he walks out of his prison cell and towards the death chamber, he, someone in front of him, announces, dead man walking. Dead man walking. That's not a bad analogy for our loved ones. They're spiritually dead people walking. They need God's pardon. They need God to act in their lives. They need Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul is reminding the Ephesians Christians and God is reminding us of. This was our past. We were spiritually dead. We were enslaved and we couldn't set ourselves free and we were objects of God's wrath, his 
uncompromising, unrelenting commitments to deal with evil in the world. God's wrath is not a bad temper tantrum or anything like that. It's not arbitrary. It's not subjective to his moods or anything. It's a settled commitment against. And we were that by nature. We were born into this condition. I have two granddaughters. And no one has had to teach them to say, no, mine. No one, as far as I'm aware. I certainly didn't, as far as I know my son didn't. You don't have to teach a child to say, no, mine. You do have to teach them to say, please, thank you, sorry. But no, mine comes naturally, doesn't it? Where does that come from? Our own sinful nature. The manifestation of self at the centre. That's what it is. We are born this way. We were objects of God's wrath. Spiritually dead, indifferent to him. Enslaved in a situation we couldn't set ourselves free from and headed for condemnation. That's the reality for all of the people who are in this world. And we were part of that. But verse 4 begins with, but God. It's a great contrast. But God. God has done something. God has taken the initiative. God has acted to overcome this horrible condition that we find ourselves in. And we have been transferred from being objects of his wrath to now being the recipients of his mercy. It's absolutely mind-blowing what God has done for us. But we ought never to forget what we were like in order that we can identify with those who are still on the path, who are still to cross the line, who are still to find the Lord Jesus, that without Christ, spiritually dead, without Christ, enslaved to the world, the flesh and the devil, without Christ, under God's wrath and heading for condemnation. But God has entrusted us with this incredible message. We've experienced it and he commands us to offer this message of life to the dead, of release to captives, of pardon to the condemned. But God acted. Once spiritually dead, now spiritually alive. Once enslaved, now set free. He has reversed the condition of sin. Well, what does this passage say that God has done? And why did he do it? What has God done? Verse 5, he saved us. And verse 8, he saved us, delivered us, transformed us, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And Paul uses three words to describe what he means by saved. In verse 5, we are made alive in Christ. We're now aware of God, have desires for God. There's something within us which is now resonating and attracted to God. He has raised us up in verse 6, the beginning of it, raised us with Christ, not resurrection, but the ascension raised us into the heavenlies with Christ. And thirdly, in the second half of verse 6, he has made us sit with Christ. What do you think we're sitting on in the spiritual realm, in the heavenlies? Thrones. From being spiritually dead, enslaved and under condemnation, to being made alive, raised up and now sitting in the heavenlies and now granted a new authority in Christ, a new authority over evil. And that 
authority is often exercised through prayer. We engage the battle through prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, we will come to it. And that God administers his authority through his praying church. We are now united with Christ. God has acted and united us with him like the vine and the branches. He's the shepherd, we are the sheep. Like Lazarus used to be dead in the grave... And Jesus commands him, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth in the very next chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, talks about how Jesus is in Bethany and Lazarus and some others, the disciples are there with him at the table and they are having fellowship and a meal together. Raised to have fellowship with Jesus. That's our story. We've been raised, given new life to have fellowship with him, related, united with him. Why did God do it? Well, this is the amazing bit. What prompted God to act on our behalf? There's nothing in us. It's not that God looked at us and felt sorry for us, that God looked at us and had pity in us, or he looked at us and saw something admirable or something attractive or something nice about us. It wasn't anything in us that caused him to act. It was something in him, the passage says. It says, verse 4, it was his mercy in verse 5, his grace. Uh, in verse 4, the end of it, his love. In verse 7, his kindness. There was something in him, his mercy, his grace, his love, and his kindness. He chose to act against rebel sinners, us, because of him, to reveal something of his character. And verse 7 gives us the clue so that in the coming ages, in the future, in the next world, in the next life, when this one is completely over, in the coming ages, he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace through us. We are the evidence of his kindness. Stott gives the analogy of when he was at theological college his principal, the Reverend Paul Gibson, retired. And as a parting gift, they had a portrait of him made. And while Stott was there, they unveiled that portrait. And the principal, Paul Gibson, makes this comment about it. A, a very lovely comment. He says, in future, he believed that people looking at the picture would not ask, who is that man? But rather, they would say, who painted that portrait? They wouldn't be attracted to who is the man. They would be amazed by the quality of the work of who did that. Who is the artist? So when, in the ages to come, the passage is saying, when angels and beings look at us, they won't say, what an incredible, who are those people? They will be admiring, rather, who did that? Who is the artist? We are the evidence of his grace, his kindness and his love. We are his exhibit, his trophies, if you like. Just as the galaxies reveal his power and the angels reveal his holiness and hell will reveal his justice and wrath, so the redeemed in the new age will reveal his grace, his love, his kindness and his mercy. We are exhibits of his grace. And that ought to impact us now and the choices we make and the way that we live. The Apostle Paul goes on to say, verses 8 to 9, that all of this is a free gift, not just faith, but all of this. 
This whole experience of being redeemed and made right with God and made alive and raised up with Christ and sitting in the heavenlies in the spiritual realm, all free. Not based on any of our achievement, not based on any of our works. It's not a reward. There's no room for human merit or human boasting. We didn't do it. He did. That's why he gets the praise and the glory. Verse 10, in fact, goes on to say that we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. This is his best work. And I think if you read Genesis chapter 1 correctly, you're supposed to get that same response. And God made light. Let there be light. And there was light. And God says, that's good. God then says, makes a firmament and separates the waters above and the waters below. And that's good. And God makes land and vegetation. And that's good. And God's put his sun, the moon, the stars. And that was good. And then he fills the ocean and the land with animals and plants and vegetation. And that's good. And day six, he makes man. Male. Female. And the conclusion to that is, that's really good. That's very good. We are the pinnacles of his creation. We, frail mortals that we are. He has chosen his sovereignty to take us and to elevate us. Not for our sakes, but to be the demonstration of his abilities, that we are his workmanship. People don't look at us and say, who are those people? They look at who did that? Who is the artist? It's God. Created for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I have a painting at home. Used to, um, anyway, it's in our fa- home, in our family room. And not everybody, but most people, 80%, 90% of people who come to our home and they go into the family room, they'll see this, what I think is a magnificent painting, print. And without fail, 80, 90% of people will say, wow, that's really nice. Of course it is. That's why it's hanging on my wall in my family room. But they then say, who did that? They want to know the name of the artist. And then I have to remember what his name is. Vicario, I think. Did three works. Bright and colourful. That's what God has done in us, in redeeming us. We who were no one, slaves, spiritually dead, under condemnation, now made alive, set free, and now heirs of everything. Salvation in this passage tells us that we have been risen from the dead, that we are liberated from slavery, that we are rescued from condemnation, and that we are the creation to walk in good works. All of those are the work of God. We can't do any of it. And interestingly, the passage ends with walking. Verse 1 begins with, we used to walk in sin and transgressions. We used to live in that. And now it ends with, now we walk in good works, which God has prepared for us. There is a, a contrast. There are two ways to live, that way and this way, without God, with God. And the turning point in the passage is verse 4, but God. In a helpless, hopeless situation, but God acted. God planned. And it's all through Jesus. So a couple of questions and applications for us and then I'm finished. Is there a but God in your life story? But God. But God intervened in my life. But God 
changed me, but God forgave me. God rescued me. You need to realise that over here it's spiritually dead. But you need to be spiritually alive. And that only comes through Jesus. Over here you're part of Satan's kingdom and you can't get out. But Jesus, the great deliverer, can deliver you, transfer you to his kingdom of light. Over here self is on the throne. The flesh rules and you're concerned with what people think and you're concerned about what you want. You need to be transformed and forgiven where Christ is on the throne and where your heart's desire is to please him. If there is no but God in your life, then I encourage you to humbly present yourself to God. Raise your hands to him like a two-year-old and say, Heavenly Father, lift me out of this. Change me. Forgive me. Deliver me. If that's the desire of your heart, then be encouraged because that's not a natural desire. That's from him and he is working in you. Second application. The reality is this passage presents to us the very honest truth that we as people, as fallen people, are a riddle. We're a mess of contradictions. We make marriages, which are terrific, and we break them. We deal with infertility, helping people to have children. And we also kill unborn babies through abortion. We create masterpieces of art, but we also build terrible living conditions and slums. We've developed telephone links around the world, and yet we fail to communicate within our own families. Just look at ourselves even, not the outside world. With our same mouth, We say nice things and we praise God. And with the same mouth, we say terrible things and cruel things and lash out nasty things. We hug people and we lash out at people. With the same eyes, we can watch the beauty of a sunset or we can also watch the violence and the sexual degradation on our TV programs. We're a mystery. We're a riddle. We're full of contradictions, but... God in Christ wants to change us and set us free from all of that. Make us alive. Make us free to pardon us. So what can you do? Well, this. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, In view of God's mercy, in view of what God has done in Christ, present yourself to him, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to him. That's the only appropriate response. Lord, this is what you have done. This is what you are wanting to do in us. I'm presenting myself to you. Take me and use me, possess me, fill me in whichever way you choose to fit. And then finally, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, then Galatians 2.20 is to become our statement in conclusion to this sort of a passage. The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I'm not on the throne. He is. But Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not my own. I belong to him. And I am to serve him and follow him. That's his intention and his will. That's the appropriate response for us to make. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer 
that we might do that together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a God who is rich in mercy and kindness and grace. We thank you through Jesus that you have acted, that you desire to set the captives free, to give life to those who are dead, to take those from who are under condemnation and to grant pardon, full liberty of the sons and daughters of God. Heavenly Father, we present to you ourselves this morning, asking that you might fill us, that you might equip us and shape us, and that you might use us, send us into the world to live different to the world, not giving in to their influences, but rather being an influence for you, that others might come to experience your grace, your love, your mercy. Lord Jesus, live in us, and we bless you that you loved us and that you gave yourself for us. We praise you in your name. Amen.